your word and the practicality of your word. Thank you for including all the things that you've included in scripture for our instruction. And I do pray that we would have open ears and open hearts and minds to hear the truth today. And that your spirit would take and apply it in our lives where it needs to be applied. In your name, amen. So if you have your phone on, I'd appreciate it if you turn it off. And I just have one comment. Probably the worst thing that you could hear when you're wearing a bikini is, good for you. <laughs> yeah, that wouldn't be what you want. <laughs> All right, because David is a man after God's own heart, you know, the spiritual life of Israel was something that was important to him. Notice under the reign of Saul, there was no attention ever given to the ark. It had been completely neglected, out of sight, out of mind. However, specific instructions for worship had been given clearly to Moses and the people were uh, following in the wilderness. And they had designed the very intricate, specific design commanded by God to make the portable tabernacle, as well as the parts that went inside, the most important piece being the Ark of the Covenant. So this was a symbol of the very presence of God. It was where the mercy seat was. It was where the priest represented the people on behalf of God, to God, on behalf of Israel. So uh, we saw, the last time we saw the ark was in 1 Samuel, when we studied it a year ago at this time. It had been taken into battle by the Philistines, who found that wasn't too good for them. As you recall, the multiple plagues, and they had returned the ark on a cart with a brand a new uh, ox as it brought back into the land of Israel into Beth Shemesh, came wandering, lowing as it went. And as you recall, curiosity by many brought about the sudden death of those who peeked inside and looked at the inside. So the ark was then moved to, at that point to Kiriath-Jerim and placed in the house of Abinadab where it had been neglected for all these years, somewhere of 60 to 100 years. So Abinadab and his family had taken care of it. Commentators vary on the number of years that went by, but needless to say, multiple decades had passed and no one thought anything about the importance of the Ark of the Covenant of God. The presence of God had not mattered to Saul, but it does matter to David. And so we see the heart of David regarding this whole matter, really in the book of Psalms, verse 132, chapter 132.6, behold, we heard of it in Ephratah. We found it in the field of Jair. Let us go into his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your godly ones sing for joy. Once David established Jerusalem as the political headquarters for the people and the nation, he was about to make it the spiritual headquarters as well. So reestablishing tabernacle worship required gathering everything that had been scattered throughout all these years and getting the furniture and arranging it just as God had given precise description in Exodus 25 through 27. So this was a top priority for David and he wasn't king very long before he set out to take care of this and bring the ark to Jerusalem. So we begin with moving the ark. First of all, it's a failure to follow God's instructions. A good thing to do, not done in the right way. 
Now David, again, gathered all of his chosen men of Israel, 30,000. That's a lot of guys. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him to uh, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned above the cherubim. And they placed the ark of God on a new cart. I wondered if they got that idea from the Philistines. Oh, maybe they did that. Let's do that. I don't know. At any rate, they placed it on the cart at the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were leading the new cart. So what we have here is God's will being done, but not in God's way. This certainly is something I think that we're all well acquainted with in our life uh, and able to relate to. How many times have we set out to obey the word of God and do his commands, and then we take a shortcut or we tweak it, or we don't really look at what God's word says about how I should apply this. And we often do what's expedient, and in the process, we really fail to obey completely. In these first few verses, we see that David actually has a great deal of support and a large group of chosen men at his disposal. At his disposal. David has the right priority to make a place of national worship in Jerusalem. So he's decided to transfer the Ark of the Covenant from this home of Abinadab. It's about 10 miles west of Jerusalem. So it was a huge event. Because, as I said before, it was close to 100 years that it had sat there, separated from the tabernacle. But on this very important day, David has determined to bring the Ark to Jerusalem, but he makes sure that there's 30,000 chosen men to protect it from possible attack by enemies. It was the Philistines who had sent it back to Israel, as I said, on a new cart with an ox pulling it so many years prior. Certainly the Philistines had no knowledge of how God commanded for this to be transported, the ark. But Israel certainly had that information from God. The law required Levites to carry it on their shoulders by using the poles that passed through the golden rings that were attached to the ark. So the Levites were forbidden themselves to even touch the ark or even look inside. For some reason, no one thought that these kind of details or commands about it were really important to you know, look into. So David was excited to be a part of bringing the ark to a place of permanent worship. And the quickest way, most logical in his mind, was to put it on a wagon pulled by an animal. Perhaps having the sons of Abinadab there, and had been in their family all these years, made everyone feel comfortable after all it had been with them and under their care. So they did the humanly logical mode of transportation, and these two great-grandsons, great-great, however many greats, of Abinadab had the honor of escorting the wagon <coughs> as they went along. I wonder, I couldn't help but wonder if they used the poles to lift it into the wagon. Nobody got struck dead, yeah. you know, getting it into the wagon. I assume the poles were still there in the hoop. So anyways, just a thought. Meanwhile, in verse 5, we see David and all the house of Israel are celebrating before the Lord. All kinds of instruments made of fir wood and with lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. So it was loud music with a lot of rhythm, a lot of joy, a lot of excitement. And the mood of the ark was a reason for celebration. So all this singing and joy, everybody's following behind the ark. It was a national event. So many thousands of people were involved. And this national symbol of the place where God's presence 
was now on its way to Jerusalem, the city of David. Why it is that David didn't look into the requirements about what God said regarding the ark being moved, we're just not told. There was no priest who looked into it. Nobody said, oh, excuse me. And so many times we looked at David last week, everything he did before going to war, everything was about he prayed first, he sought the Lord first. He didn't do that here. There's no record of him seeking the Lord in prayer about this. <clears throat> David anticipated nothing but blessing because he really thought to, he was seeking to honor the Lord, and yet that's not what happened. Certainly no one could say anything negative about David's motives or David's good intentions here. Just as women, we often have godly motives to want to honor the Lord by becoming a wife one day or becoming a mother one day or by serving in a ministry in a local church. Um, but sometimes good intentions are lost by a failure to do the good thing in a wrong way. We can have good intentions and then fail miserably to do the good thing in the way that honors God, the way he commands us to do it. Well, verse 6, suddenly all the joy and the music and the dancing comes to a stop. But when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. And the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah, and God struck him down there for his irreverence. And he died there by the ark of God. Had they followed God's command for the ark to be carried on the Levite's shoulders, this situation wouldn't have even happened, this unsteady ground. Uzzah had a quick moment to react when the oxen stumbled and he thought it might fall out. And so he grabbed hold to steady it, and God struck him dead. It seemed like he was doing a good thing, you know, try to protect the ark from falling over and possibly being damaged, and yet God struck him dead for his irreverence. God did not strike the Philistines dead when they put the ark in the wagon and sent it back. But you know what? They had no knowledge of God's command in regarding how this was to be transported. However, Israel did. They had knowledge. They were enlightened. And when one knows the truth, there is a responsibility and accountability to obey the truth. You know. Israel had been given the light of the truth of God. They were responsible then to obey that light. The holiness of God really is not to be taken lightly. There are consequences for violating God's word. Two of Aaron's sons, as you recall, were struck dead by God for offering strange fire on the altar. They certainly knew that better than that, but they failed to be complete in their obedience. I don't know what it was they offered, but they were representing Israel before a holy God. And went out of line with what they did and they were struck dead. There are many other times in Israel's history where God dealt in such a way when his clear word was violated. <clears throat> Think of Moses. Remember, God was going to strike him down because he hadn't circumcised his two sons. And his wife quickly took care of that. Thousands had died in Beth Shemesh, you know, looking inside at the ark for their irreverence. Certainly, Uzzah and others had the opportunity to be familiar with history and what God had done and what had happened in past years. God is holy. God is pure. And he does not tolerate incomplete obedience. David had such a great zeal for the Lord, but you know what? Here he ignored the precepts of God. 
The ark was supposed to be covered. It was supposed to be carried on the shoulders of the sons of Kohath. David had a right desire, but he went about doing things in a wrong way. And really, like David, all believers are to follow what is written in Scripture rather than following their own ideas or their friends' ideas. How often we fail to realize that God truly is holy. Just because we are able to be adopted into his family when we come to him in faith, trusting Jesus, he's our brother, he's our savior, he's our friend, God is our father, we're his child, we can call him Abba, Daddy. And I think sometimes we fail, because of those wonderful truths, to have the proper reverence that God is holy. God is never wrong. He never does anything that's unrighteous. So when this horrific event happened, as Uzzah lay there dead on the road, uh, we see the reaction of David. David became angry because the Lord's outburst against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. David was annoyed with God. I don't know, was it his pride being wounded that he was doing such a great thing for God only to have this happen? Or is it the fact of his pride thinking he knew better than God? He would have never done this to poor Uzzah. Therefore, this should have never happened. It's a dangerous thing when we are angry with God. You have to be honest with yourself to even know when you are angry with God. And you are. I am. I have many times. And it's a failure, really, when we're angry with God to believe that God is perfectly righteous, that he's always good, he's always kind, he's always wise by allowing what he allows in our lives. Really, when you peel back all the layers um, in the midst of a certain trial you're going through, it's so easy to focus on the person or the circumstance that we think is the source of our pain, discomfort, annoyance, aggravation, whatever it is. When you peel that all back, though, reality is God is sovereign, Amen. and God's in control, Amen. and he has allowed this person, this situation, this crisis to be in your life. So it's not the person that you're really annoyed at. It is God that he's allowed this in your life if you're truthful. <clears throat> it's so easy to put our blame on a thing, a circumstance, a trial, or a, a particular individual, but it is God who could intervene. It is God who could rescue. It is God who could have prevented all of this from happening, and he chose not to. And as I quoted last week, Isaiah 55, 8, his ways are higher and wiser and more perfect, and he has greater purposes than our little puny brains have a grasp of. Well, after anger, David is angry. Then he's afraid. He is full of fear. Like, oh, wow. This is God. One author put it this way. There's a slavish fear which springs from hard thoughts of God. And there is a holy and laudable fear which issues from lofty thoughts of his majesty. The one is a terror produced in the mind of apprehension of evil. The other is a reverential awe of God, which proceeds from right views of his infinite perfections. The one is a product of guilty conscience, and the other is the fruit of an enlightened understanding. End of quote. It appears David is frustrated because he was so sure he was doing the will of God and bringing the ark 
to Jerusalem. And it was the right thing to do. Wrong way. Verse 9, so David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord to the city of David with him. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, Obed the Gittite. And thus the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. The problem wasn't with the ark. It wasn't like a bad luck thing or something. No, it was a blessing for this family to house the ark even for these few months. But it's a serious matter to do the right thing in a wrong way. This type of incomplete obedience really is not acceptable to God. I mean, how much clearer can that be, right, than right here? David failed to consider that God was so holy that he was to be completely obeyed, not obeyed partly, half-heartedly, without pursuit of the truth. So what are some specific ways that you and I may do the same thing? As David. I don't know why these things came to my mind, but they did, and you may have a multitude of others. First of all, we may say, I know if I'm married and have a husband that I'm supposed to submit to him, I'm supposed to respect him, and he's made a decision that is unwise or stupid or whatever. And but you say, but I let him, you know, have his way. He made his decision. And then you nag, you speak harshly, you ridicule his thinking capacity. Uh, don't be naive to think that just because you submitted and let him make this decision that you've obeyed God, because you haven't. You're just griping and <coughs> Another thought, God clearly commands parents to train your children in the ways of the Lord. Train them to be respectful, train them to be obedient, and you believe that the child you have is God's gift from the Lord that he has entrusted to you to be a good steward of. And you love your child. But when you fail to teach them to obey, because it's so hard to do, or you make an idol of your child and you love them beyond your love for the Lord, do you think that God uh, thinks that you're an obedient parent doing his will? I don't think so. Scripture commands believers to be generous in giving to the Lord and his work and giving to the poor. And when you give your offering to the Lord in worship, when you give that, are you thinking of all the unpaid bills you wish this money was going towards instead of giving this in the offering? We're told to give with joy and uh, give with a happy heart. That's not complete obedience. You may have put the money in, but you resent that you couldn't use it in a different way. Incomplete obedience. Well, I could go on and on. <clears throat> of examples of incomplete obedience. Commanded to forgive as we've been forgiven. And you say, I forgive. And yet you continually resent a particular person and rehearse all of their offenses in your mind. So it's always alive, always there for quick retrieval. But I forgive them. You know, you are to serve the Lord in a particular ministry in some cap capacity. All of us are to do that. Find out what our gifts are, serve the Lord, whether we have that gift or not, but find a, a niche. And so you go ahead and volunteer and do that, and then you grumble and complain and hate doing it, and every time it's the time to do it, you wish you weren't doing it, and so on. Do you really think these things are complete obedience, ladies? You know what? I, you get the gist of what I'm saying. <laughs> yes, I'm doing this, and it's not the right. It's not acceptable to God, and that's pretty serious. 
This is what David did. So in three months' time, as the ark was sitting elsewhere, David went from anger to fear of God, and now he's ready to go bring the ark to Jerusalem. So we see the ark is brought to Jerusalem in God's way. We read in 1 Chronicles a fuller picture of verse 12. 1 Chronicles 15 11 says, The sons of the Levites carried the ark of God on their shoulders with poles thereon, as Moses had commanded, according to the word of the Lord. Then David spoke to the chiefs of the Levites to appoint their relatives, the singers, with instruments, goes on and on to name the instruments, to raise sounds of joy. So that kind of fills in what verse 12 says. Simply, David went up and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. There was a lot of joy going on. It would appear that David had a Bible study ah, and discovered that obedience really, his obedience really hadn't been obedience. In the word, of, uh, the word of God, David discovered the right way to transfer the ark of God, and he humbled himself and was going to do it the right way now. If our obedience has been incomplete, we also need to be in the word, learn exactly how it is God wants us to behave, how he wants us to do what he has us to do, what is the attitude he wants us to have in serving. Make an effort to know what God wants you to do and do it with the right internal attitudes. To change does require humility. I mean, you do end up really having to go back and ask forgiveness to those who you have wronged in your incomplete obedience. I mean, for David, everybody knew what happened last time. Like, nobody forgot as it was dead on the road. Uh, so that's, that's like, oh, you know, David was responsible in part for this, that whole thing happening. So he humbled himself, and he now is going to do this again. And at this point, you know what? He's free. He's set free from all that fear, or anger, and struggle, and he's filled with joy because this time he makes sure his obedience is complete. He is in complete submission to the word of God, and that's freeing. And he's now filled with great joy. He is dancing before the Lord as every six steps they stop and make a sacrifice before the Lord. David, think about this guy. He was a mighty warrior. He was also a gifted songwriter. He was a musician. Not a lot of men with all those kinds of traits uh, together. He is so joyful in his worship of the Lord that he expresses himself in this way, completely free in the Lord. I don't care what anybody thinks. And in this time of celebration, David wore a linen ephod, which is a sleeveless priestly garment worn by the priests. You recall that Samuel had also worn a linen ephod. And although David was not a Levite, he chose to lay aside his kingly robe and take the lead in the worship of God. He was not uh, attempting to take the role of the office of the priesthood here. However, he had been anointed by the Lord. The start of the whole messianic line of kings uh, was David that would be fulfilled in King Jesus, who is both priest and prophet. So he's twirling, and he's leaping, and he's leading thousands of people on this journey to, uh, to Jerusalem with the ark. And as the multitude of musicians are playing their instruments, there were singers as well, and many believe Psalm 24 was the song that was being sung at this event. So probably uh, singers answering each other in this as they marched along. 
Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, and the King of glory may come in. Who is the King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift up your ancient doors, that the King may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. Amen. From the moment the ark arrived in Jerusalem, it would be forever the spiritual heart and center for worship. Forever. <laughs> all in God's prophetic plan as well. Everyone is very happy, but David is criticized and despised by his wife. We always have to have an Eeyore or a Debbie Downer, you know? <laughs> so it was his wife. Then it happened as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David that Michal, David, uh, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord and she despised him in her heart. I can only think of Deborah, and everybody loves Raymond, looking out the window and going, idiot. You know, that's, that's all I can think of. Anyways, as David is wrapped up in his emotion and joy before the Lord, his wife sees from the window, and when she saw him, she's really embarrassed by him. He had taken off his kingly garments, and he looked like a common man, dancing before the Lord, she thought he was making an absolute fool of himself. How often are believers thought to be the biggest of fools because of their zeal and their love and their commitment for the Lord and their desire to obey him? You know, that's especially painful when the mocking comes from those you love and those who are closest to you. David had no idea what was going on in the mind of his wife as he's joyfully coming into Jerusalem. We, need, we read in verse 17 that the ark was placed then into the tent that David had pitched for it. And then David had, they had peace offerings before the Lord. And obviously David had planned ahead at length because in verse 18 he blesses the people who had been a part of this amazing event and distributes to everybody bread, dates, raisins. It's a big party. It's bigger than Christmas. You know, it's a big deal. So all exciting events come to a close. <clears throat> and as David returned home to bless those in his own household, no doubt exhausted but still full of, full of such joy, he walks in the door and is met with ridicule. How long the king of Israel, or how the king of Israel distinguished himself today. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids as one of the foolish ones shamelessly uncovers himself. Talk about pouring cold water on a special moment. <clears throat> she mocked his spiritual zeal. She's ashamed of him. She's humiliated by him. She's disgusted by his actions. I remind you that she had been a princess her whole life. <clears throat> and uh, she never saw her dad, Saul, act like this. No, she probably saw Saul throw spears at people in a fit of rage, but okay. <clears throat> but not this kind of thing. At one time, remember how much she had loved David? That she risked her life and her dad's wrath to hide him and get him out of town for his own safety because she loved him and was willing to deal with the wrath of her dad. Uh, she certainly believes royal families are superior, it would appear, and shouldn't be out with the commoners or the riffraff <laughs> acting like them. So it seems uh, like her biblical hero, if I were to pick one for her, would have been Job's wife. Why don't you just curse God and die? You know, that's, that's my hero. Anyways, uh, 
no interest in what God is doing and how important this moment is. I, I remind you when Jesus started his earthly ministry and crowds were gathered around, his family was trying to get to them and get to him and he's like, I, can't, I know, and they thought he's out of his mind. That's what his family thought when he started his ministry as well. So David's response to Michal. So David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will celebrate before the Lord. I will more, be more lightly esteemed um, this, and, and I will hum, be humble in my own eyes. But with the maids of whom you have spoken, with them I will be distinguished. It seemed that David touched on a nerve or a sore spot uh, when he talked about apparently an issue. <laughs> it's the Lord who appointed me over your dad's family, him and all of your brothers, you know, who are all gone at this point. It's God who had removed Saul and put David on the throne. And nothing is going to stop David from his joyous worship of his God. Nothing and no one. David is determined that he is going to obey the Lord, even if he has a wife who doesn't approve of what he does. So difficult to be married to an unbeliever or to a professing believer who is not obedient to God's word, who wants to be an obstacle in your walk with the Lord. It may be another family member that you love dearly that just doesn't comprehend why it is that his word is so important to you, why it matters so much to you that you honor the Lord and please him as your top priority. Family and friends must not keep you from loving the Lord supremely. Jesus made that very clear in his command of those who follow him must be willing to take up their cross, leave father and mother, leave everyone, and love him supremely. Well, the beginning of this chapter showed us God's judgment of Uzzah, and then we close with another judgment by God, and this time it's of Michal, being barren for the rest of her life. God did not look lightly on her critical, harsh, proud spirit towards her husband. She had no interest in David as her spiritual leader, and she would never have a child to raise uh, from her marriage with this man. Pretty severe judgment for God. So, a few applications in addition to what I said earlier. God is holy, and we need to reverence him and, and believe he's holy. I, I, I think... So often to go back with that and trying to teach and raising kids, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You have no fear of God. You don't have wisdom, <laughs> no matter how smart you are. So we are to take God at his word and take it seriously and obey his word all completely, not partial. Because secondly, partial obedience is not good enough. Doing the good thing or the right thing in the wrong way is not acceptable to God. It's just not. And just as it is not acceptable to you, if you have a child and you've asked them to go clean up a room and they're picking it all up, grumbling, rolling their eyes, talking back about doing it, you think that that's not acceptable to you. That's not obedience. That's annoying. <laughs> so if that's true on a human level, how much more a holy God that we do what he tells us to do, grumbling and complaining the whole time. So take your role serious. Oh, okay, that's. Be serious about obedience to the Lord, that you're not guilty of partial obedience. Whatever your role is, as a daughter, as a wife, as a mother, as a grandmother, as a friend, 
as an aunt, whatever it is in ministry and serving the Lord, be a woman of God. Do what he's given you to do as a woman completely. Not hit and miss. Thirdly, all scripture that is applicable is to be obeyed. We can't pick and choose, we can't change, we can't ignore, we can't claim ignorance. I mean, like that wasn't an excuse for David, you know, that he didn't bother to read. Uh, we need to be students of the word, and I'm proud of you that you're here studying a not-so-easy book. But it's equipping you to live your Christian life. That's what his word does. Good intentions are not sufficient. We need to know his word and obey it. So I don't know. You need to ask the Lord. My last thought is just ask the Lord to show you from this study today any areas in your own heart that aren't complete obedience, that are only partial, that you need to change. Because you know what? It does matter to God. Thank, thank him. He hasn't struck us dead yet. <laughs> Honestly, it's because he's patient and forbearing with us and kind. And it matters to God that we obey him his way. So will you trust him? Will you obey that old song? To be happy in Jesus is that we have to trust and obey. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for including so many events that uh, we wouldn't even know anything about that you put in there. Is God breathed and inspired for our instruction, for encouragement, for hope? Lord, I pray for each of us ladies here that we would be diligent to not just hear your word, not just know about it, but obey it and do it. And when we fail to repent, ask forgiveness, and get back on track. I thank you for the truths of your word. I pray that you help each of us to obey you and to honor you today. In Jesus' name.